Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini-series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on this, the eighth episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is Lauren Taylor Wolf 
co-founder and managing partner of Impactive Capital, an activist hedge fund that engages with companies to drive long-term sustainable returns. Impactive employs a breadth of tools common to activist strategies, working with management teams on capital allocation, operational initiatives, and capital structure, and adds material ESG improvements as a key component of the long-term future success of its portfolio companies. Our conversation covers Lauren's early interest in investing, her path to founding Impactive, and her investment philosophy. We touch on Impactive's four key investment criteria, examples of ESG activism in a hotel, an auto dealer, and a wastewater business, evolution of interest in sustainability from management teams, the value of long-duration capital, and perspectives for women in the industry. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we've added behind-the-episode email to our premium content. Each week, we'll let you know the backstory of the episode, key takeaways, favorite quotes, and what's coming up on the show. You can subscribe to our premium membership at capitalallocatorspodcast.com slash subscription signup, or click the button at the top of the homepage. Thanks so much for your support. Please enjoy my conversation with Lauren Taylor-Wolf from Impactive Capital. Lauren, great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we just start with your background and how did you first get interested in investing? I grew up the middle of two brothers, so very much in the rough and tumble of boys. My parents were very traditional. My father was the breadwinner. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. And I think my father, who you know, I love dearly, was very much the typical father of that time who expected a lot from his boys and a little bit less from his girl. And I think that was one of the starting points of motivation for me, which was and it's gone throughout the course of my career, just a series of underestimations. And it's just an ever-motivating theme of prove them wrong. And my friends like to joke with me, if you ever want me to do something, just tell me I can't do it. But the message there is if you're a dad listening, expect a lot from your girls. My first exposure to stock picking was a sixth grade stock picking competition. And I won by picking Procter & Gamble. I've always had a fascination with business. I led a business group in high school called DECA. I ran a business at Cornell, my undergrad university, where I rolled up five businesses into one corporate umbrella. Just was always fascinated with how businesses can operate more efficiently and drive profitability and value over the long run. Right out of school, I was interviewing in the 1999.com era, so it was very exciting times. I wrote a thesis on purchasing online, and I went right into technology consulting. It was a firm called Diamond Technology Group, really McKenzie folks meet Accenture folks, and their clients were Amazon and Zebra and others. And my clients turned out to be the big investment banks. So I went to go work with my clients were Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and the Kansas City Federal Reserve. And so I really got interested in finance and I was getting ready to go back to business school. And I met a gentleman who was really investing his own capital. He ran a family office and I started challenging him on some of his technology investments. And he said, you know what, forget business school, come work for me and you can cut your teeth here. And I said, wow, that's tremendous. It's the type of position I'd want out of business school. So I deferred business school. I went to work for him and I just had a tremendous experience cutting my teeth really in small caps and micro caps in the public markets. And what I learned there was we were doing a lot of speculative stuff. We were doing SPACs and pipes and direct investing into public companies and private companies. 
and I went to Wharton, did my executive MBA on the weekends while I was working at the family office. So I started reading a lot about value investing, uh, Graham and Dodd, read the classics. And then we did this one deal at the family office called Turbo Chef Oven. And that's what really, where I sort of got excited about activism. And Turbo Chef Oven, when we invested in the company around 2003, it was like a $50 million market cap company. And it was sort of on the precipice of opportunity. And we got really involved with the business and the management teams and the board. And that was one where we replaced the existing management team with a management team from a company that we had sold. It was a dental imaging company. And when we replaced the management team, they immediately signed a number of deals with Subway and Starbucks, a number of QSR restaurants. And we watched that business overnight grow tremendously, both top line and profitability. And we had invested the company at $50 million of market cap, and we sold it a number of years later for a 10x return. And so that was really how the activist bug bit me. And from there, I joined Blue Harbor. Why did you decide to leave the family office? I wanted something more institutional. So I'd completed my MBA. I made a commitment to stay there throughout. But I was really looking for something that was larger institutional and that pursued solely activism. And the way that Blue Harbor was doing activism really resonated with me. It was very much a private equity approach to the public markets. And so I just loved what they were doing. And at the time, they were small. They were about 600 or $700 million of AUM. And so what was your path there You know, over a decade that you spent at Blue Harbor? It was an incredible experience. So again, I spent a decade there investing in all sorts of companies. So we were generalists at Blue Harbor, but I spent most of my time looking at consumer businesses, technology businesses, business and healthcare services companies, and learned a ton about building consensus, learned a ton about garnering influence with a management team and a board to pursue the ideas that you were proposing. And I learned a lot about backing really high quality management teams and about distinguishing between high-quality businesses and low-quality businesses. And so I think one of the key takeaways, and you know, there were a lot of takeaways from Blue Harbor that informed how we structured Impactive, but one of the key ones was around making sure that we're always backing high-quality businesses and high-quality management teams. What's your definition of those two? Sure. So a high-quality business for Impactive is a business that has pricing power, the businesses where the moats are widening and they generally can generate higher incremental returns on invested capital. And so we look across industries and businesses for companies, again, that have that pricing power that are the dominant players in the industry and in their end markets. Where do you find markets miss those types of businesses? I think a lot of it is around the time. So just to take a, a step back, Impactive was put in business by Blue Harbor's largest LP, it was CalSTRS. And we were very lucky. They backed us with six-year capital, which is unusual in the public markets. And that really allowed us to pursue what I think is one of the last areas of competitive advantage, which is our time horizon. So at Impactive, we have four key criteria that we look at in our investment strategy, they're all pass-fail. So every one of the companies in our portfolio must pass this. It's quality, valuation, time, and activism. And so we just spoke a bit about quality. Valuation is we're looking to underwrite high teens to low 20 IRRs. We generally like a three to one risk reward on entry. 
And I think what you're getting to is that everyone's looking for a high quality business at a very attractive valuation. How on earth are you distinguishing yourself? And I think it's because our time horizon, whereas there's so much short term is in the market today, we can look out over three to five year period and think about, will this company be worth two to three X or how can we help this company be worth two to three X? And so oftentimes our opportunity sets come where there's a very highly compounding business that endures a hiccup and we're able to sort of pounce on that opportunity because we have a longer term time horizon. So many of our opportunities are ones where everyone agree this is a very high quality business. It will certainly be worth much more two to three years from now, but they also think certainly it's going to be flatter down by the end of the year. And because that's when they're compensated, they generally stay out of that position. And that would not be the case for us. Therein lies our opportunity. And so that gets to our fourth, which is activism. So our activism is we use the traditional activist toolkit, which is predominantly a capital allocation oriented toolkit around strategic initiatives, capital structure initiatives, and operational initiatives. And then we added sort of a fourth leg, and that's ESG initiatives that drive return. And so when you think about it, activists in the past have looked at ESG almost with a risk orientation, so a risk lens. And it became clear to me a number of years ago that ESG can be used as a critical tool to drive business durability and to drive sustainability. And I think today there's a lot of discussion around ESG. It's in every headline. And we think that it will become increasingly one of the more important tools in the activist toolkit. And it will be a source of profits and value to drive, again, sustainable businesses in the long run. However, For any company to take ESG seriously, it's the ESG change has to be linked to a business case and business rationale. Why don't you take me through an example or two of particularly that ESG lens and how you would apply it to a business to sort of improve what you see as economics and returns for the long term? When you look at some other investment firms, they'll have like a dedicated ESG analyst. We don't have that impact of the ESG analysis is part of the DNA of the investment team. And so when we look at any investment opportunity and we think about the activist levers to pull, we look at the same way that we would evaluate and measure, oh, this company should pursue this spin out or it should do this levered recap because of the profitability and value it can drive over the long run. We do the same thing for ESG change. Our first point of triage, so there are a number of tools and frameworks out there, but we really like the SASB materiality map which breaks down environmental, social, governance, change, and leadership, human capital. And we look at the materiality map, which is based on industry and sector. And then we decide, do we agree with these items that SASB is saying is material for this business and this industry and this sector? And if so, if we agree with it, what is the highest level of priority in terms of the levers that we can pull to drive the highest return for that specific business? So, Another way to look at it is if you take a Venn diagram and you look at all the potential ESG change that a company can pursue in one circle and then all the positive MPV projects that a company can pursue in another circle, impactive focus is solely on where those two circles overlap. And so a good example, I would think, when you think about measuring materiality is one of our hotel companies, which is Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. Wyndham is the largest franchise operator of hotels in the economy and mid-scale segment globally. And so it's an extremely high quality business, asset light, very cash generative, 
And part of our thesis was actually, you know, we're taping this amidst the pandemic where the hotel industry has been unusually impacted. And part of our thesis was that the economy in the mid-scale segment would simply outperform. And we've seen that in the STR data we've commissioned. When we thought about the activism for this business, it's very cash generative. There are a number of opportunities for them to deploy capital in a highly accretive, high-returning manner. On the ESG side, we focused on the environmental segment for Wyndham. And you know, if you take a step back, the hospitality industry spends roughly $4 billion annually on energy. That's driven predominantly by lighting and HVAC systems. And energy for the average hotel, it costs about $2,000 per room. For the Wyndham franchisees, that's about a 10% or so cost to operate. And so we worked with the company to think about products that they can implement for their franchisee locations. And we had to be very careful about which products to recommend based on the payback and based on the returns. Because again, these are hotels not generating $200 in ADR, they're generating $85 in ADR. But we put together a package of LED lighting, motion sensor detectors, smart HVAC systems where the paybacks, and they disclose their paybacks, by the way, in their corporate social responsibility report, but the paybacks are usually one to two years. Doing that, you can save the franchisee anywhere from 10 to 25% of their overall costs. So that's 100 basis points to 200 or so basis points of margin opportunity. When you step back, that's a win-win-win for everyone because Wyndham isn't expending any capital. They're simply flexing their muscle in terms of their purchasing power. Their franchisees have an outlay, but it's associated with almost an immediate return and a margin enhancement opportunity. And so you have the franchisees loving it because they're generating better cash on cash returns and you have Wyndham benefiting because they are more likely to attract the marginal franchisee because of those more attractive returns relative to their peers. So that's one area that we pursued where the measurement is really based on their ability to attract more franchisees. Another one was the simple towel and linens. You can get points for forgoing the washing and cleaning of towels and linens every time. And that's also a win-win for the guest because the guest is getting 500 loyalty points for forgoing the cleaning of their linens. The franchisee loves it because he has or she has a tremendous savings on their overall spending to clean all the rooms. And then Wyndham benefits because there's user engagement in the loyalty program. So it encourages more guest stays, which drives more rev par, which drives profitability to the bottom line. As you work through these, how do you go about measuring that, call it impact, on the business to sort of first present the case to management and then see that it's working? Because ESG is really in its infancy and most management teams are trying to figure out for themselves what's most important and what to focus on. We are putting forth proposed return opportunities based on our assumptions, the same way that we put forth return opportunities based on our assumptions around capital allocation. And so in these cases, there's a number of different examples I can give across our portfolio where we are trying to quantify if you make this investment, and it's usually an investment of small amounts of capital and some time in pursuing this specific change, you have the opportunity to drive profitability, like we mentioned with Wyndham, or you also have an opportunity to lower your cost of capital as there are growing pools of capital interested in ESG-specific products, both on the equity, but also the credit side. Typically, the markets in any name tend to focus on a few key aspects of what's going to drive a business. How do you think about where the markets will respond to something that, in the case of Wyndham, that is incremental economics and it's good, but it may not be a big driver of profitability or returns? 
the vision for activism is you're looking to make a company more competitive over the long run. When you make a company more competitive over the long run, you make it more profitable over the long run. And ESG tools are really tools to attract and retain the stickiest customers, employees, and shareholders. Doing those three things will improve your profitability. When we think about measuring and guiding companies towards ESG change, we really focus on those three metrics. How can you lower your costs of human capital? How can you lower your costs of capital to finance the business? And how can you lower your customer acquisition costs? And that's usually how we're defining it. Many of our management teams and our boards start out somewhat skeptic around making ESG change. When you take a step back, you have the three large passive companies, right? The passive institutional allocators are BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. They own anywhere between 20 and 30% of every public company. And they have these large and very thoughtful investor stewardship groups that are requesting change and engaging at the senior levels of both the management teams and the boards. And they might have 10 or 15 ideas for ESG change. And you know, of those, call it 10 ideas, five might be value neutral. Three might be value destructive, a waste of time or a waste of capital without returns. And two might be value accretive. And our role at Impactive is to really focus companies on those items of ESG change that are value accretive and to prove to the companies it's worth their while. What's an example of something where you've put in the portfolio a type of business that someone might not think has that kind of ESG lens? I have a great one. So one of our biggest positions is a company called Asbury Automotive, and it's the seventh largest auto dealer in the U.S. And just thinking through our quality, value, time, and activism, Asbury Automotive is extremely high quality business. They're effectively locally granted monopolies, but it's really misunderstood. So we were buying the shares at six or seven times earnings. And, you know, people, when they think about auto dealers, they don't think great ESG players <laughs> and they think very cyclical businesses. But when you peel back the onion and really get to know these businesses, the vast majority of their profitability of their EBITDA, two thirds of their EBITDA is driven by the parts and services business, which is a sticky business. It usually is recession resistant. And we're seeing what we believe are secular tailwinds to the parts and services business, meaning cars have become incredibly technologically dense. They're more silicon than steel nowadays. And so a fender bender five years ago, Geico would tell you, take your car to the mom and pop collision center nearby and they'll be able to fix it and move on. Well, today a fender bender costs far more because of, again, the body of the car being so technologically dense. You simply have to go to the auto dealer to refit and repair those businesses. And so we got very excited. It also is when you look at Asbury, it's, you know, a business that has just under 30% ROICs over a cycle for the past 10 or 15 years. And a lot of that return is coming from the parts and services business, which has far north of 50% ROICs in our estimation. And so we peel back the young and we say, what can Asbury do from an ESG perspective to really drive incremental profitability and value? And the main issue challenging that overall industry, both for the collision players as well as the auto dealers, is a labor shortage. And when you really investigate the labor dynamic within primarily for auto technicians or mechanics, you realize there are far more mechanics retiring than they can attract fresh new talent to the space. And so we got really curious about why that was. And we started to look at the complexion of the labor force. And what we realized was 
if I asked you, Ted, you know, what percentage of mechanics do you think are women? What would you guess? I would guess quite low, but 5% or less, maybe 2%. I don't know. It's about 2%. So 2% of auto mechanics are women. And what we know from any macroeconomic data or even other industries like construction or healthcare is that when women participate in the labor force in a greater rate, productivity improves, output improves. And so we thought about how can we investigate ways to get women more involved to solve their technician problem. And so we worked with the company. I think the company is the first publicly traded auto dealer to offer disability and paid maternity leave to mechanics. They're moving to a four-day work week. They're going to flexible shifts. And this is very helpful, particularly for attracting women, because the burdens of childcare and elder care disproportionately fall on the shoulders of women. So this all sounds good. And that investment in moving to a four-day work week and offering special benefits, they also offer long-tenured mechanics equity opportunity. And this is the first time these professionals have ever been able to get equity in their business. It changes the culture of the business. It also has allowed them to attract and retain more technicians to their auto dealers. And importantly, what it's going to do is allow them to drive greater growth in the most profitable portion of their business that is capitalized at the highest multiple. And so you can look at over a long period of time, if they can improve, for instance, the utilization in their base, the average utilization in a parts and services bay is about 50% across dealers. If they can improve that utilization, just 10% by attracting, retaining more mechanics and particularly women, they have an opportunity to drive their enterprise value high double digits. So call it 15 to 20%. As you roll these up, I'm just curious, what does your portfolio look like in terms of number names? So our portfolio construction, we have about eight to 12 positions at any point in time, each eight to 12% of the AUM. And so today we have about 10 positions, almost half of which were put into the book between March and April of this year during the pandemic. So we are very much busy and actively at work. A lot of times you think about activism as a discipline. You think about taking companies that are underperforming and trying to make them better. When you think of that ESG lens, how much are you trying to find good stewards of ESG? compared to those where maybe they're not as good and you can get them better or they're doing fine and you just find areas of improvement? Sure. So I think there's naturally a high correlation. The higher quality management team running the higher quality business tends to get the benefits of positive ESG improvements. And some of the things that we learned were where activists sometimes encounter pitfalls is when they invest in low quality businesses and pursuing some short-term change. And that might work sometimes, but usually they find themselves falling into a pitfall of having a highly illiquid position in a low-quality business where time is certainly not your friend. And that overall can diminish the overall value of the portfolio. Now, with ESG-specific change, I would say we're in such early days. Specifically, we target small-cap companies. So you don't find very high quality management teams and businesses that have perfect ESG scores. There's always opportunities for improvement, I guess, is what I would say. And especially since there's just, again, we're in the infancy of this type of investing, I think you're going to see more and more companies try to stand out and have high signal to noise in terms of the value that they offer. 
Where do the conversations that you have with management teams run against resistance in this area? I think it's changed a lot over time. 10 years ago, I don't think management teams would have listened to you at all. For most activists, it was really when you break apart the environmental, social, and governance change, it was always a governance conversation. And today, I think good corporate governance is simply good corporate hygiene. And so management teams get that. I think they're starting to listen now around the environmental and the social side of things. I would say, I can tell you a story. One of our investments on our first meeting with the CEO before we had taken any stake, before we could even introduce ourselves, he had a whole story prepared for us on why he was good for the world and why he was good for his society. And it's interesting because usually sometimes activists, when they meet with CEOs and management of companies, there's naturally some level of guard that's put up. But what we've found is that because I think we have this moniker of this good housekeeping stamp of approval for good ESG stamp of approval, we have a lot of management teams actually calling us for inbound requests on what can I do to improve my profile and what should I be focusing on? And I think a lot of it speaks to management teams and boards are waking up to the fact that they're going to be rated. And they're also importantly waking up to the fact that there are growing pools of capital interested in sustainability and ESG. And one of the themes running through our portfolio, since we invest in small cap companies, many of our companies are in growth mode, right? They're in capital deployment mode. And the ability to attract a lower cost of capital relative to competitors is a structural strategic advantage. And so I remember before COVID happened, most people were asking, wow, is ESG just a bubble? And actually what we've seen is that the sustainability funds and the ESG funds have actually performed quite well despite the volatility. And the sustainable equity funds demand and inflows is rapidly growing. On the credit side, green bonds, climate bonds, sustainability linked bonds, there's over about $5 billion invested there. And if you believe what Larry Fink of BlackRock says, he thinks he's taking his $90 billion in sustainability equity funds. He thinks that will surge to over a trillion in the next 10 years. And I think we started to see it last year. There was $200 billion in capital outflows from the traditional equity funds and about $70 billion of inflows into ESG and sustainability funds. And these funds are sticky pools of capital that effectively lower the cost of equity for companies that meet and sort of lead certain ESG requirements and, and ratings agencies. And so our view is that making sure your profile and your story is soundly told will allow you to attract a lower cost of capital, which would be increasingly important. Where do you see the breadth of companies on their reporting abilities on ESG metrics? The reporting, frankly, is challenging because there's no standards. Again, we really like the SASB materiality map, but there's a great professor at Harvard. His name is George Serafine, and he actually just put out research that demonstrated the more a company discloses about ESG factors, the greater the dispersion in ratings from folks like MSCI and Sustainalytics. So I'm very eager to participate. I think the industry has a lot to do in terms of setting certain standards, but I think as you think about why these rating agencies are important, I think they will start to gel around the most important aspects of disclosing and tracking and setting goals around, for instance, carbon emissions, around waste, around air quality and water quality, around employee health and wellness and safety. And I think they will come to a more standardized level for measuring companies against one another. And once we have that, I believe you'll have, for instance, MSCI partners a lot with BlackRock to design a lot of these products. Once you have that, I think there'll be more clarity around which companies have access to be included in a lot of these various products. Tell me about a time in your research process where 
you were looking at a company that effectively met your criteria and you knew that there was going to be a tension between what you could accomplish on the ESG side and maybe valuation or the quality of the business. How do you think about pricing in the value of what you can bring on the ESG side? I'll give you an example of a company that we bought in the March sell-off, and that was Advanced Drainage. And this is one where it's an extremely high-quality business. It had a higher-than-we-are-used-to valuation, and it has an unique and unusually large opportunity, an outsized opportunity around the ESG front. But let me tell you a little bit about Advanced Drainage. It's about $3.5 billion leading manufacturer of HDPE storm and wastewater drainage structures. So these are piping. It's high-density polyethylene piping. Now, they're sold into commercial markets, infrastructure, resi, and agriculture end markets. But importantly, they are the fifth largest recycler in North America that you've never heard of, and they do their own recycling. So over the vast majority of their products are actually made of recycled plastics. And as the dominant player in the HDPE market, they have over 70% share, which is over 10 times the next largest competitor. And what we've seen over the past 20 years or so is HDPE has taken a tremendous amount of share from the incumbents, which are concrete and metals. Those incumbent provider products are far less environmentally sound. For instance, the HDPE pipes are about 44 times less carbon intensive than concrete, just to put a fine point on it. And so our view is that, yes, the cycle, it's questionable where we are within the non-resi cycle. But the point is, this is a company that has tremendous pricing power because it is the dominant player in its field. And despite whatever cyclical pressures they might experience, they certainly have secular tailwinds. And the secular tailwinds are coming because they are today they have about 30% share of the overall piping for stormwater market. However, they've taken that share over time because using their pipes and products entails about 30% labor savings. And so what we've seen is in times of economic distress and weakness, they actually accelerate their share taking. So extremely high quality business has pricing power driving high returns on incremental invested capital. And now they haven't even told their ESG story. They're, again, the fifth largest recycler in North America. So we think that they have a unique opportunity now, one, to tell their story. They're going to be coming out with their new ESG report that discloses a lot more about how sustainable their products are and, how, and their businesses. And we believe they'll have a tailwind to growth because of the labor savings and the cost advantages that they offer to their customer as well as sort of ease and safety of install. But over the next decade, what I imagine is that municipalities and states and even commercial projects will demand more environmentally friendly products are used within the overall development of the project. And we believe that'll drive massive tailwinds to their business. And so that's a company that's an example of an extremely high quality business. It wasn't trading at seven times EV to EBITDA. When we were buying it, it was trading closer to nine times EV to EBITDA. But we think it's going to both grow their EBITDA at a very rapid clip, and they'll also get multiple. As you've emphasized these kind of factors in your analysis, these ESG factors in the analysis, what have you learned that might have been some misconceptions you had you know, a couple of years ago going into this? I thought it was going to be much harder to convince companies to focus on ESG change. And I think they really are adopting change 
in a much more rapid pace than we would have anticipated. And so I think it's easier to identify and ring fence the return opportunity associated specifically with ESG or sustainability investments. And I think companies are really taking them quite seriously. Now, absent, we started seeing this going into the, these were certainly hunker down and focus predominantly on cash flow and liquidity and showing up their balance sheet. So the conversation around sustainability and ESG never stopped. And the investments in these types of funds that cumulatively will generate value over a very long period of time. And I think if we fast forward 10 or 20 years from now, we're not reverting back. We're not going back to the time where you know the environmental and climate change is not going to be a focus. Our vision at Impactive is that while we might change one company because we can help it with capital allocation and ESG in a way that allows it to attract and retain the sickest customers, employees, shareholders, will make it more competitive, will make it most profitable in the industry. Over the very long run, multi-decade period, not only have you changed a company, but you've changed an entire industry because all the competitors have to follow suit. And so that's, that's the long-term vision. And I think the misconception was that it would take longer for companies to realize that, but I do think that they are realizing it, accepting it, and acting upon it in a much more expeditious manner. You can put the same ESG to some extent lens on your own business and something we had talked about when you were launching. What have you found about the positioning of your fund in the marketplace? I think there's skepticism because in the past, what ESG funds were mostly inclusion-exclusion funds. I'll only invest in companies that are solar or clean energy, or I won't invest in companies that do gaming or gambling or oil and gas. And naturally, when you limit your universe of investment opportunities, you're going to limit your return opportunities. And so we flipped it on its head and we said, no, we want to we be the catalyst of change that we want to see. And we think we can drive returns by doing so. And so I think there was naturally in the market a negative predisposition to ESG funds because of that. And I think we're really just getting started. There's a tremendous amount of demand. I think sustainability funds demonstrating that they can outperform in times of volatility and over long term in the market is going to stand out. And I think in the US, at least in Europe, they're much farther ahead. But as I mentioned about the flows, I think we're going to continue to see tremendous flows that are interested in ESG and sustainability funds that are pursuing the strategies in a thoughtful manner. And if this trend that we're seeing of more interest ended up being wrong, we're five years from now, we say, wow, that really didn't happen. What are the things you think could derail it? So the inclusion, exclusion funds taking in more capital and generating subpar returns or the folks like us who are pursuing it, frankly, just not putting up returns. So we'll lose the flows and we should, frankly, right? So I think that there has to be, you can't pursue ESG for ESG's sake. You have to pursue it because it drives business value over the long run and you have to be able to demonstrate the business value. And so if we're unable to demonstrate that business value, I think the allure of these products will definitely fall off. So as you started the business, as you mentioned with the investment in CalSTRS, you had this unusual situation where you had a six-year horizon with your anchor investor. How do you think that's changed how you've gone about investing? We do a lot less. <laughs> I know it probably sounds crazy, but we constantly remind ourselves we are in such a unique position. Again, so 
as way of background, CalSTRS was the largest investor in our prior fund. They had full daily transparency into the returns and they knew which investment partner led which investment. And having that full level of transparency and knowing us individually and our character, they were able to develop high conviction quickly in underwriting us. And importantly, we're in their sustainability bucket. And so we had a lot of conversations with them about making investments for the long run and not being plagued by short-termism. And that's why having that, again, that six-year lock capital was so important. The vast majority of our other capital is in a three-year share class. And so what I think that has led to is patience, making sure that we pounce, but being able to be nimble. So Christian, my partner and I, we're lockstep about a lot of things. We've worked together for over a decade. And you know, there's a lot of pushback about the dual PM or the co-PM model. Someone that we both know may or not have written a book with a chapter about it. But what I would say is that when you think about Impactive's model, we're very similar to private equity. And the duration of our capital is not quite as good, but it is similar to private equity. And so it gives us the luxury to, we're not making 50 different trades a day. The frequency of our trades is very low. And what we realize is sometimes not acting is the best thing that we can do. And so we were very careful about deploying the capital. And so I think that long lock capital gives us two things. One, it gives us an ability to take our time diligencing the company so that we know which companies we like at which prices. And it also gives us the flexibility to come up with ESG ideas that are longer term in nature to make the investments and then work with companies to drive those longer term returns. We are the rare activists that will say, you know what, you should make this investment that might diminish your margins in this quarter or the next quarter or the next couple of quarters because we have such high conviction in the longer term IRRs and we have the capital that's aligned with our ability to do that. In a lot of investment disciplines, you see pattern recognition of something that works somewhere that you then try to implement in another part of your process, let's say, or other ideas. Are there any of these where you'll look at businesses on your watch list or whatever it may be and say, oh, we've used these lenses in the past. This might work for a different type of business to source something new. Yeah, I think that's usually around the capital allocation side or structuring side. So I think that's the value of being generalists. Our team we, at Blue Harbor, we were generalists. At Impactive, we're generalists. And I will say, we can take a structure that we've seen implemented in one industry in one sector and say, well, what if this applied to this other industry or this other sector, whether it's an MLP or a certain type of securitization? And so I think having that multidisciplinary lens, looking at structures and vehicles that have worked in one industry and for one company and being able to apply them broadly or in another area is definitely valuable. And we do this today when we talk about with our companies, how to measure emissions, what to focus on how to set goals around that. I think that is sort of a universal idea that can be applied broadly speaking. So as you look out over the next couple of years, what are you hoping to accomplish? The vision is to build a franchise where we can help companies attract a lower cost of capital, drive tremendous business value, and become the leaders in their space, get real competitive advantage because of the changes that they're making to the point, again, where they can change an entire industry. For Impactive, we were very early in the space, and my hope for the firm is to really be a thought leader in how we pursue the ESG change with a lens around returns and value creation. And I believe that we'll see a number of other firms follow suit. 
And so we're having a ton of fun. It's early days for us. We want to build the business, continue to have fun and drive value for our companies. So Lauren, as you've thought about your path and your business, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot in doing this podcast is just the dearth of women in investment management. And as you've thought about this ESG lens and everything you're doing, I'm just curious to hear your perspectives on your path of having grown into the seat where you are as a woman. This is a societal issue, right? And it's one that's getting a lot of coverage now, broadly speaking. And I've been extremely lucky and fortunate to have developed skills and learned from many professionals in this industry, both men and women. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. But we need to do a lot more work. And the more women and minorities that people see in positions of leadership, the more we'll get in the future. And I often tell my peers, so my contemporaries in the activist space, we have the luxury of sitting on boards. And when they're looking for new board candidates, they'll constantly say, well, I don't have as qualified a female or minority as I do another individual. And my point to them is simply, well, we should be responsible for filling the funnel of diverse candidates that we want to see. And so I urge all of my peers who sit on boards to make sure that they're asking the right questions in the boardroom and focusing on recruiting, retaining, investing in, developing, and promoting men and women of color and and women so that we don't have this funnel issue in the future. And so I've been, again, I, I grew up with boys. I'm used to a male-dominated industry, but I think as an industry, we need to do a better job really investing in the diversity of the future talent. At Impactive, the majority of our investment team are women and minority, and we're unique like that. But there's a long runway of opportunity for the industry, broadly speaking, to make some change. Have you found over your path from working your way up as a consultant and early in investing and doing an exec ad at night and then getting married and having kids, that any of the sort of traditional thoughts of the role of a woman, as you said earlier, that child care and elder care fall disproportionately on on the, the shoulders of a woman, that that hinders at all the path and trajectory in the workplace? So I think in large firms, there's been a lot written about when they choose to have a family, you know, you see the promotion drop off and there's this great, McKinsey did this great study where you see as you go through ranks within a large organization, it starts out pretty equal. And then somehow when you get to like the MD level, it dramatically falls off. And I think it usually coincides with the time that women decide to have families. And so I just think we need to completely rethink flexibility. And maybe the coronavirus and COVID pandemic is the trigger where women can work from home more. I think I'm a little bit unique in that I was raised with a stay-at-home mom, but I was always encouraged from both my parents that I can do anything I want. And so I've always thought, well, then, yes, I'm going to do everything I want. (laughs) And so, you know, I sort of want my cake and eat it, too. I have three wonderful children, and I also am pursuing my dream in business. But I do think that some of the unconscious bias and barriers in the workplace need to be pulled down. And then I guess for the female listeners out there, what I would say is there's a lot of empirical data written about this which is a lot of men, I remember sitting, I was in the audience of a panel and someone at JP Morgan was saying, you know, I have about 
50% females reporting to me and 50% men reporting to me. And I asked them a question like, who is an expert on breastfeeding? And 50% of the females' hands went up and about 75% of the men's hands went up. And she's like, okay, that's like impossible, right? And it's because I think along gender lines, some men volunteer for things that they know they figure out later on. And I constantly encourage some of the young women that I mentor, you know, just say yes, say yes to everything and go figure it out and take on the challenge and don't worry about doing it perfectly. And so for the female listeners out there, I would say, just say yes (laughs) and figure it out later. Great. Well, Lauren, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I mean, there's not much time for those, but I would say (laughs) besides exercise, I would say matchmaking. So to the extent that I'm reasonably good judge of character or psyches, I'm responsible for three marriages. If you let me quickly comment on the three humans that we've created, I've taken my children, I've spoken to them about activism, taken them to protests, and I want to make sure they know that they're irrespective of their age, gender, and their size, there's power to their voice and they should use it. That's great. What's your biggest pet peeve? In general, it's when people, if you share your ice cream with people and they leave excess ice cream on the spoon, it is what it is. I don't have any. That's my main pet peeve is when people leave extra ice cream on the spoon. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? So that's definitely short-termism. I think there's an obsession with the short-term and it's been created because there's so many allocators that need simply quarterly or monthly liquidity, but that's just insane. And I think for activists, it's even worse because it encourages activists to pursue what we call a very short-term sugar high or to try to force some immediate change in the business, like a share repurchase sometimes from the activists. And I think it's a distraction and it discourages from a company's perspective, it's distracting and it discourages investments in longer-term business growth and longer-term organic growth. So short-termism definitely. What do you do for self-growth? I listen to good podcasts. We are like literally in the midst of a pandemic. So I have been taking to, I built a couple bird feeders and we're doing some puzzles. All right. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So I think for my dad, he's just extremely loyal and hardworking. So I take from him being loyal to people you really care about. And then from my mom, it's definitely distinguishing the big stuff and the small stuff. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Definitely take more and bigger risks earlier on in life. I think the most excitement, joy, and personal growth, as much from failure, frankly, as from success, has come from when you take risks along the journey. That's great. Lauren, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.